reach them, God. I pray that any distraction, any blockage, anything that the enemy is trying to do, to not allow them to hear the word, Father, whether it's me, the method, or whatever, God, that it is put aside, and that the only thing that is postured to hear is the heart. Talk off in the corner. 
water like that. They think I'm smart, right? Right? The Bible even talk about that, that, that a fool, if he keep his mouth closed, is sound intelligent. So the smart person, if he pick it up on that, he's like, oh, sound super intelligent and just really be quiet. Right? Because you don't want also to change the perception of how the culture or how people view you. And so it's easier at times to get paralyzed by this notion of what will people think about me? And so with the help of God and my wife and some other encouraging people here at our churches in this season of like me pushing past that. Right? So when you see my apologetics channel and you see me start posting and putting out some stuff, like that's like every ounce of me like just hit upload and just be done. <laughs> just hit upload, don't worry about it, don't go look at views, don't look at nothing, just upload, turn on comments, be happy. <laughs> right? And so, uh, as we focus in this series, essentially, it's birthed out of, out of that. It's birthed out of me trying to push past, even within myself, this idea of answering that question based upon what does culture say? Right? It's about redeeming that answer. It's about adjusting the question that we ask. Because the problem with the question of identity is we typically answer it by saying, I will see me. So how, how, who am I? Well, how do others see me? A lot of times, even when we talk about in the church, people who's trying to discover their purpose, right? And what's the first thing? I don't know if it's the first thing, but I feel like it's the first thing that happens is, what, what do you see in me? Right? We are, we are prone to naturally go to others for them to speak worth or value into our life. And that's all great if they big you up. But what happens when they don't get the same excitement as you? What happens when they don't when they critique what you thought was all that? Right? What happens when they say something that you don't agree with? What happens when they say, I don't know. Well, I don't know who I am. You don't know who I am. Let's not be nothing. Right? It's this, this drastic trend of us looking for value significance uh, from the culture or from how other people view us. And that is what creates what I'm calling this identity crisis. Of people not understanding their worth, their value, their significance, apart from what others may say, right? And everybody wants to feel valued. Everybody wants to feel like they have worth. Everybody wants to feel like they have meaning to life, right? That's why a purpose is still one of the top Google questions every year. Purpose. People trying to figure out why do I exist? And I told y'all last week, naturalistic, the naturalism worldview don't tell you why. You're an accident. You have no purpose. If God didn't create us, if you don't hold a theistic worldview, and so you got a whole bunch of people as atheists are not believing in God, trying to figure out purpose, and they're stumbling because apart from God, you don't have no purpose. You're a blob of clay. And you might evolve into some intelligence, or you might not. And so, if that's true, who do we have to look to for identity? Like God, yes. Now, I want to start off by addressing something. And a lot of you have heard me say this a lot of times if you've been around any amount of time. The reason this question of identity is very important is because when you're desiring to be something, when you want to be accepted, when you want to know who you are, what you believe about yourself will always affect your movements. It will affect your actions. It will affect your journey in life. And so I've always said this. What we believe, I was talking about the black, there it is. It's not. Y'all have to pull out your phones and do some scrolling today. But what we believe affects our behavior. 
right? What we believe affects our behavior. So if we believe that our self-worth, our value, our significance is determined by the culture and other people's opinions of us, then our behavior begins to do what? Transform towards that, right? Or either try to maintain that image. And this is why like, this cancel culture becomes this like, whole new identity crisis. Because now it's not just okay to be accepted. Now I gotta make sure I don't get canceled. <laughs> and so if I'm once accepted but my views is different than the world's, well, if I don't want to get canceled, I can't even still be myself. I gotta like adjust myself. So like this, the cancel culture begins to create this whole new identity crisis because you once used to fit in. And then you opened your mouth and disagreed with the majority. And now they like, mm, we done, we done. Unfollow, don't listen to their music. Mm, okay. Here we go. If you live in this culture where followers and likes translate into value and significance, Right? What you begin to do is become this person who seeks after likes and followers. And that's the world that we live in right now. Everything is about likes and followers. Everything is about likes and followers. That's why you have a person who has 10,000 followers and ain't never read anything on Jesus. They ain't never did nothing but read their daily devotional. But all of a sudden, they become the scholars on social media. And members of churches will hold their view higher than their pastor. And I'm not saying all pastors is right, but I'm saying they definitely not. <laughs> right? You read these memes, and everybody be resharing, and you be looking at that like, I'm, I'm going to be real. I'll be like, come on, y'all go to reach. You please tell me you do not believe that. I know I teach better than that here. Right? I'll be like, what in the world is this meme you just like? Because you know, on social media, not, you don't, not only do I not have to be following the page, if I'm following you, I see what you like. And you be looking like, all right, so discipleship this week, we'll be talking about it. <laughs> but it's also this reason why when you first started out sharing, you know, your faith and fitness page, you always talked about, like, yo, you're on a treadmill, showing you working out. I'm running, I'm jogging, right? And you only got, like, two likes, and one of them was you. <laughs> and so then one day, you accidentally, on purpose, recorded your whole workout, and it happened to be leg day. Y'all know what I'm saying. <laughs> 500 likes. 20 new followers. So what are we conditioned to do? Well, you gotta follow the analytics. So what is it that people like? Well, people like the content that is like this, and so what do you naturally become, begin to do? You begin to adjust your behavior to produce the content that people like. Why? Because you want the likes and the followers. And so your behavior begins to become adjusted to what people like, and you begin to conform to the culture trying to be accepted by the culture. And I'm not, and I'm not, I'm not just rap. Listen, I did it. Listen, man, what, four or five years ago? Like, y'all know. So me and my wife were both uh, certified personal trainers and fitness uh, coaches. I think my wife is a certified life coach. Uh, and so, and we used to have a, a, a gym. And we used to own a personal training studio called Inside Out Fitness Club. And, you know, and this is about when I was, before I was doing powerlifting. So I like 190, right? Little, little something, you know what I'm saying? A little snap for my wife. And so, um, <laughs> So, matter of fact, Lorenzo, you saw my boy Lorenzo, you saw him like, man, why you training like that? Like, you, you trying to be a Spartan or something? Like, they'll take all of that, right? And so, so, now I'm a whole pastor, y'all. Now I'm not leading pastor. I was the assistant pastor for six years at my former church before we sent out to plant this church. And I'm on social media 
you know, and I'm posting pictures like, yeah, getting client, by, you know, come work out with us, you know, and I'm, I got my Jesus conviction, so modesty go both ways, so I'm got my shirts on, we just wear a tank top, you know what I'm saying, you getting, you know, a couple leads every now and then, one or two people, so then, you know what I'm saying, I've got up the courage to like, so you ain't just take a picture with your shirt off, you just posted a workout where you didn't have a shirt on. <laughs> With my shirt off, I was just showing my workout because it was a bomb workout, right? So you post that, all of a sudden it's like new clients, new clients, new clients, women by the way, new clients, new clients, right? So then you like, all right, I see what they like. So now you take your little pictures with you know, and, and I was cool with it, and I justified it. I believe that all those pictures don't nobody be trying to let them find them. I was cool with it. I was I justified. I'm like, man, listen, I'm out here. This is for business. I ain't trying to like make nobody stumble. I'm, I'm good. I'm happy. I'm married. I don't want nothing else. I'm just this for business. But I never forget, man. Eventually, when you have to, this is why you gotta make sure you have a dope accountability group. Because eventually, after so many pictures started going up, my phone started ringing. Hey, man. So let's let's talk. <laughs> I'm like, what? And the first first thing first, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm like, man, listen, y'all out here taking this whole modesty thing. Y'all, man, this is for business. Like it's the heart that matters. You know what I'm saying? Like it ain't about what it's the heart. Man, y'all know my heart. <laughs> right? You get sorry at you hang up, right? Then you sit there and the Holy Spirit be like, no, they right, right? <laughs> so you start telling the Holy Spirit, it's the heart that matters, man. You know that. You know my heart. <laughs> the Holy Spirit like fat. I do, so I'm checking you. It started off as business, then you started liking the lights. And so with the conviction of the Holy Spirit, I took all that stuff down. In conclusion, we also don't have a joke no more. Clients stop coming. Leads stop happening. It's all good, man. Sometimes we gotta sacrifice for Christ. But you start to create content that people want, so I do. Right? And all of a sudden, your faith and fitness, okay, y'all got me. So, here's my point. If your value and worth and significance is determined by culture, then our behavior typically transforms to it. And for the uh, believer, this is problematic. Because that behavior might get us culturally accepted, but it always may have us miss the mark of holiness. So we may get accepted by culture, but it typically doesn't keep us holy. Okay, let's talk the Bible. We can do that, right? I know it ain't gonna be on the screen for y'all today, so write these verses down, or if you got really quick fingers, switch to it. But everybody should know this. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to the age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is good, pleasing, what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Do not be conformed to this age. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect. Well, okay, James 4 4. You adulterous people. Now, <laughs> I love when verses start off like that. It's just like, whoa, bro, hold up. Don't judge me like that. I didn't say that. The Bible did. But if, the, if James is talking to a group of believers and he's calling them adulterous people, He's calling them adulterous people because the church has always been identified as the bride of Christ. And to be an adulterer, you must be what? Cheating on God. So that means whatever follows after he says that is how we cheat. Okay, how do we do it? He said, you adulterous people, James 4, 4. Do, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? So whoever wants to be the friend of the world, 
becomes an enemy of God. And I know we don't like that. Right. Like, dang, I can't even me just not. The Bible also said, don't forget the other verse, be in the world, but not of the world. Facts. And don't conform to the ways of the world, but be transformed by the ritual. Get in there and don't be conformed. Right. right? And let me explain something. It's not because God hates the world. God created it, and he also said it was good. Okay. The problem isn't that God hates the world. The problem is that the world hates God. Right? And ever since that, bite of that forbidden fruit, the world rebels and hates God. Hates his wisdom. Hates his law. Hates his logic. That's why they say it's regressive. Don't make sense. And so, the things that used to big up a person, they don't big up people no more. Right? They're not godly anymore. And those godly things that you used to do that used to get you applauded, yeah, nah, get you canceled. For example, there's this Christian artist who made this song about modesty. I'm sorry. <laughs> but he wrote the song to his daughter. This is recent. This is recent. It was last week. He wrote the, the, the song to his daughter. And then this song, it's kind of like satire at the same time, but he, he wrote the song and he's like, listen, what, God, what the guy's like is a modest girl. Right? And he's talking to, the song, to, to his daughter and he's telling his daughter essentially that he wants her to make sure she dresses in a way that is, whatever, not, not modest, to say it like that. And so what happens immediately? Well, the progressive Christians and the cancel culture runs in and they cancel this man. Now, this is a song to his daughter. He probably should have, he should have known better. But it's a song to his daughter. But it's a song to his daughter. And, and, and they canceled him. And here's the thing. I'm not, and I'm not going to argue, like, the historic abuse of this whole modesty thing, right? I, I'm sorry, sis. I know. Sorry. I agree. There's been a lot of historic abuse around that level of accountability and causing you to have to bear the burden of men's self Lack of self-control. It's not your responsibility. So we're not talking that. Right? However, the Bible still teaches modesty and purity. There's still biblical instructions. And so we have to address the bad teaching. But the problem with this whole deconstructive movement is they don't have no balance. They don't want to just fix the wrong teaching. They just want to throw the whole idea. So don't talk about purity or modesty at all. Don't do it in the right way. Just don't talk about it at all. And if you do, Okay, well that's one thing. But here's a bigger thing. When has it ever been wrong for a father to want his daughter to dress appropriately? Like when did that become, because actually this whole culture would call that like parental abuse. It's everything's abuse now. But when has it ever been frowned upon for a father to talk to his child, not his grown child, to talk to his child about making sure that she dresses in a way that is not trying to over-sexualize her, her beauty, but to just be like, listen, you don't have to do what the world is doing. I want you to cover yourself up. That's never been wrong before. But now all of a sudden, you don't get applauded. It used to be protection. It used to be called parenting. But now you don't get applauded for that. Now you get canceled for that. Why? Because culturally acceptable things anymore, as we progress towards complete lawlessness, goes against God's word. And so if my identity is wrapped up in the culture, if my worth is my value, if my significance is wrapped up and determined by the culture, then my behavior will happen to typically transform to it. And if I'm transforming my behavior to what is culturally accepted, I am typically moving away from God. That make sense? Be quiet on me. We're done talking about that now. But here's the switch. If we believe that God determines our worth, value, significance, 
Then in the same way that our behavior begins to transform to the world, if we're seeking it from the world, if we begin to focus on God, then our behavior begins to what? Transform and conform to the things of God. And that's the whole purpose of this series. To redeem how we answer the question of identity. By not answering as who am I or how does the world see me, but by first asking who does God say that I am and how does God see me. That's the question. Who does God say that I am and how does God see me? And that's what we looked at in the first two messages. And so today, as promised, we're going to shift to addressing... Maybe I'm standing with that light. Praise God. <laughs> so today, as we as I promised, we're going to shift to addressing identity. And the identity question of who am I by understanding what it means to be the Imago Dei. Somebody say Imago Dei. Right? And I've been telling y'all for two weeks we're going to talk about this. We're finally going to talk about it. Next week, Oscar. Alright, so the Imago Dei is this Latin term. And I don't know why like all like the heavy theological terms, like they got Latin roots. Um, actually, you know why? It's because um, when they went to Northern Africa and got all the black church fathers, they went up and taught the Europeans theology, but the language that was popular during that time was Latin, and so that's why these terminologies are in Latin. Um, but I did just want to highlight that when the African church fathers went from Northern Africa up to teach theology, um, Alright, cool. So, <laughs> the Imago Dei is the Latin term for the doctrine of the image of God. And this is the doctrine that seeks to explain what is meant in Genesis 1.26 when God says, Then God said, let, there, let us make man in our own image, according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them, both male and female. And that's the Imago Dei, right? That when God created humankind, he created them in his image and his likeness. And if we just use logic, right? If that is how he created us, then the meaning of it, at least on this macro level, speaks to who we are, right? And so here's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at what does it mean to be made in the image of God. We're going to look at what created this identity crisis to begin with. And then we're going to look at what is the solution, maybe. And so, I'm going to admit, though, this is about to get a little bit teachy. A little bit teachy. And I know, like, a lot of times we've got to save this type of stuff for midweek. But I committed as a pastor and as a church that Sundays are for substance, too. Somebody say, Sundays are for substance, too. Sundays are for substance, too. Let me hashtag that, too. Matter of fact, go on your social media. It's not right now. Right? And tell social media, PT told us to tell you that Sundays are for substance, too. And this is true. Right? Because one of the great minds, this guy named J.P. Moreland, this dude has an amazing mind in philosophy when he's talking about this whole idea of behavior and uh, uh, belief working together. And he has this book called Love the Lord Your God with All Your Mind. And in this book, he makes this statement that to change a belief, it takes not just content, but substance. Right? So you can't change a belief just by telling, something, telling somebody something new. Right? You gotta really get in there and it talks about what the strength of belief is. Substance creates a strength of a belief. Right? And if you don't have substance, then your belief has no strength. And when your belief has no strength, uh, Ephesians chapter 4, you'll be tossed to and fro by every wind of cunning doctrine. Right? But when you have some substance, when you have some strength to your belief, then even though the winds beat against you, 
You don't sway. You don't move. You're not, you're, not, you're not easily distracted from who God is. And a lot of us don't have strength in our belief because we're not teaching substance of theology anymore. So when you go through something, you think God hates you. When you go through something, you think God don't exist. Right? And the enemy creeps right into our shallow understanding of God. And he starts to jack up our whole thinking about God. Because the substance of our belief does not exist. But when there is substance, we start to act like, ooh, I'm going to get there. We start to act like John chapter 6. When everybody left Jesus. Because Jesus started talking about eating of his flesh and drinking of his blood. And he's always like, what? Man, okay, listen, we came here for the fishies. And if you ain't multiplying no more fish, don't be talking to me about eating bodies and blood. We ain't on that stuff. And they also, so when you go from John chapter, into John chapter 5, into John chapter 6, and we're going to say it's arguably about 20 plus thousand people chasing after Jesus. And Jesus tells them this. He says, listen, you're only here because you, you, you saw the loaves, you ate, you want to eat again. You're only here because you want something from him. And so when they finally, when they wanted something from him, they came to Jesus. And then when Jesus gave them what they needed and not what they wanted, at the end of John chapter 6 was 12 people in Jesus. Twelve people in Jesus. And this is what Jesus said. Because Jesus, Jesus is like, <laughs> Jesus, oh, he never gonna get done. Jesus is like that hurt. He's like me. Right? He's like that hurt leader. <laughs> and everybody walking away from him. And Jesus looked like at his faithful few. He like this. You gonna leave me too? <laughs> Still got y'all, right? <laughs> like, imagine the look on Jesus' eyes. It's got to be like that same look when you looked at Peter. After Peter betrayed him. Right. And the Bible says when they met eyes, instantly Peter became convicted. I don't know what that look was, but if Jesus, if we can get that look to us sometimes, we might stop acting the way we should act. Jesus sent us the look. It's that look that my uncle used to have. My uncle was down to pray for him, right? He's, uh, he's actually going through, he got, uh, 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 a cancer, so terminal, so he's not going to be with us much longer. But my uncle Donald, he ain't say much, never really did much from either. But whenever it was a family event, and I'm cutting up, and any of my cousins is cutting up, all he had to do was look. And that look told you everything you needed to understand about what was about to happen if you continue. We need to look. But Jesus looks back. And he's like, yo, y'all, y'all here too? And here's what his people said. Peter, the same guy that denied him later on. He said, where are we going to go, Jesus? You have the words of life. We have come to know this. In other words, Peter said, you might not be talking what I want to hear, but my belief is so secure and strong that I'm not leaving when the naysayers walk away. When everybody looking back and they saying, hey, why are you still following Jesus? I'm like, I'm still following Jesus because he's still real. But don't you know? Yeah, I do know. <laughs> but that ain't got nothing to do with why I'm following Jesus. None of that stuff attacks my belief in Jesus Christ. And when we get substance, that is what keeps us in those moments when life is not going the way that we want it to go. That's why I love when I see people fighting and pressing through. Because they had substance. And so with the internet and the swipe of everybody's hand, they can come up with anything. So we can't just talk about fluff no more. Right. 
Anybody can just Google anything. So substance is what's needed because they're getting some water on the internet. And if you give them some water too, well, whoever gets the most water wins, I guess. And so this identity subject is too critical for me not to talk about some deep stuff. As a matter of fact, Beth Felker Jones makes this statement in her book, The Image of God in an Image Driven Age. Listen, if you don't got that book, get it. The Image of God in an Image Driven Age. She makes this statement. The doctrine of the image of God offers truth and health in a culture inundated with images. In other words, the key to healing and having a healthy understanding of self is found in understanding what it means to be the imago dead. And there's a lot of debate around this subject, and I'm not about to, that would say that for me, we know. I'm not about to go through all of the nuanced opinions. It's, it's five primary, primary ones, but really it's just two, right? And so what we're going to see right here, I'm not going to make you all wait for it, but being made in the image and likeness of God relates to kinship and world representation. That's why I thought it was dope. Me and Gary don't necessarily connect on some of these songs, but the fact that the last song was that I'm a child of God, I am who you say I am, it's so fitting, because that's what it means to be made in the image and likeness of God. That I'm his kin, I'm his kind, I'm his family, and I'm his world representation. Right? And that may be new to you, because if you've been around church for any amount of time, and somebody told you, what does it mean to be made in the image and likeness of God, this is the typical popular church answer that you will hear. It speaks to the immaterial parts of man. Will, intellect, emotion, all of that stuff. That's what you're going to hear. What does it mean to be made? And here's the argument. Well, they'll Quote passages like Deuteronomy uh, 4.12 that says things like this. The Lord spoke to you from a fire. You kept hearing the sound of the words but didn't see a form. This was only, uh, there was only a voice. Or they'll quote John 4.24. God is, dang, I thought someone was going to be with the spirit. Okay, don't worry. We're going to keep reading John. Right? Or we go to John 5.37. The father who sent me has himself testified about me. You have not heard his voice at any time. And you have not seen his form. And so what happens is people take from that that God has no form. Now some people are going to argue about that. Uh, I won't this morning. Right? But they conclude from that that God has no form. So if God has no physical form, according to this view, then to be made in his image and likeness can't have anything to do with physicality. Right? It has to, since God is immaterial, then to be made in his image and likeness means he must be speaking about the immaterial parts of his existence. And so what does God have? We have will, intellect, emotion. And so they start to ascribe all of those things to us. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. And a lot of people have thought this. From the earliest church fathers of Augustine, even Martin Luther, and all of them, they, they taught this. And I'm not necessarily saying they was wrong. I'm just saying that was like first and second century. They didn't have some stuff. And so that's the popular view in the church. But like always, there's always two popular views. There's the popular view in the pew, and then there's the popular view in scholarship. And sadly, there's this big disconnect between the academy and the church, and so the things that's really being highly debated in the academy is not being talked about in the church, and so you be thinking you crazy for not thinking that that's what the Bible say, but because it's not being talked about in the church, you just think you crazy, but then you start to do a little bit of research and you realize, oh, wait a minute, there's a whole lot of very, 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 very intelligent people that don't agree with that, and they talking about it, and I thought I was crazy, and then you... Realize that you're not crazy. What is this popular view amongst Christian scholars, especially those who specialize in their Eastern culture? Right? And, 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 and here's the biggest reasons why I reject the first idea. Well, because the Imago Day is for all people. Right? It's for all people. And that means this 
that if it's for all people and it's will, intellect, and motion, what about the child that has autism? Their coherence is off. They don't have that in the same capacity, potentially, that I have. And so either they're what? No longer the image of God or what? They're a lesser image of God because they don't have the full capacity or they're not equal to me? So that creates a problem. Right? Or what about the fact that the, that we don't always possess will, intellect, emotion all the time. And so you think about the, the embryo in the woman's womb. That has the potential for will, intellect, and emotion, but right at conception, it's not all there. It has to be developed. So that means that the embryo is not the image of God. It has to form into the image. Okay, well, we know where that problem, where that problem takes us. Or what about something very basic? Like, if the image of God is what sets human beings apart from all of, the, of God's creation, animals have will. <laughs> That's why they hunt. They're hungry. Animals have intellect. They're very smart hunters as well. And they have emotions. That's why they become comforts for other people. They get angry. They get hungry. They tell you, right? They have will, intellect, emotion as well. So then if that is what the Imago Day is, how did that separate me from an animal? It doesn't. And so that means this whole immaterial argument breaks down because it does not apply all the time. And so I'm going to give you another argument. That when we talk about the image of God or the Imago Day, it's talking about royal representation. Royal representation. Right? And we're going to see that when we look at these two words. Right? You look at image or the Hebrew word salim. Salim. Or you look at likeness or the Hebrew word demu, right? And when you look at these two words, what you begin to realize is that they really just speak about representation. And, and, and though there's two words, they really are just one meaning that the two words are creating like this, this whole bigger picture. And I'll give you an example of that. In Genesis 5, chapter 1, I really wish we had, I got an awesome lot of scriptures and I really wish you had the screen. Make sure you're writing stuff down so y'all can proof text me. I don't want anybody to walk out of here just believe in me. Go do your own study. Be like the church of Thessalonica who studied the scriptures daily to see if what we said was true. Genesis 5, chapter 1. This is the documentary containing the family records of Adam. On the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Okay. But the Bible says that we were made in the image and likeness of God. But in Galatians chapter, Genesis chapter 5, it takes off the image piece and just says we're made in the likeness of God. Or just look at Genesis 126. I mean 27. 126 says, God said, let us go make man in our image and likeness. But in verse 27, it says, and so he created man in his image. It takes, it takes the likeness off. And so from that, we get this idea that image and likeness, though they're two different words, they just give a full picture of what it means to be created in the image and likeness of God. And what that means is that they carry the same idea of representation. Representation. Selene, the image, it means visual appearance. At least ten times in the Bible when we see that word, it always talks about uh, a physical representation. Now you may see the physical piece and be like, well, wait a minute, physical, I thought you said it's not physical. Well, don't think physical like that, right? Think physical in the sense of not an identical representation, but just a physical representation. So for instance, when they made the golden calf, um, it talks about that they made an image, right? And they made a Selene, right? After God. Well, there's no God that looks like a golden calf. Right? Because they're not trying to make an identical image. They're just trying to make a physical representation. You know what I'm trying to say? That makes sense to y'all? They're just making a physical representation. They're not trying to make an identical God. So the Anchor Your Bible Dictionary says this. The Egyptian text makes it clear that images were not meant to be depicted 
about what a god looks like, but it represents an attempt to describe certain qualities or attributes of the deity. And that the primary purpose of the image was not to describe the God, rather the image was one of the primary places where God would manifest himself. And we could go there, but we won't, because I don't know, y'all know what I know, but the Bible tells me that we are the temple of God and that the Holy Spirit comes to us and he dwells in us. Why? Because we're image bearers. But we're not going to go there. We also can talk about how these same images were typically always created with the mouth open. Who knows why the images were created with the mouth open? And they would have these mouth opening ceremonies. Because the reason they would create these idols with the mouth open is because they believed that the mouth open, that the God would enter into them through the mouth to manifest himself inside of the exact idol. Now, I'm not saying that that's what God did, but Genesis chapter 2 seems kind of similar to that because the Bible says that he formed man from the dust of the ground and then he breathed into him. Wow. The breath of life and he became a living being. Why? Because the is. The image is a representation, mm -hmm. right? But that's another sermon. <laughs> the mood or likeness is similar. It means appearance or character. And it doesn't always mean physical, right? In Isaiah 13 and 4, the Bible says this. Listen, a commotion on the mountains like that of a mighty people. Listen, an uproar among the kingdoms like nations being gathered together. The Lord of armies is mobilizing an army for himself. And notice what they're saying, that the roar of the mountains are called light, the mood. The Hebrew word for mighty people. And so it's saying that this commotion that happens uh, in the mountains is like a commotion amongst a lot of people. Now, obviously, the mountain is not a physical representation of people, right? And so it's not always a physical thing, but it's more so an abstract understanding, right? And, and we know this. This makes very much sense to us because we've all heard, based on somebody watching you do things that you do, and they say what? Oh, you act just or girl, boy or girl, be appropriate here. You act just like your mama or your daddy. And they're not talking about how you look. They just watch you move. Right? People watch my son walk on his toes all the time, and they always say, they like, you walk just like you. I don't walk on my toes like him no more, but I still bounce on him a little bit. Because I was fast. Like a trap. <laughs> The point is that likeness relates more to abstract things rather than physical things. And so when you study this on your own and you put those two words together, here's what we understand. Image and likeness just means representation. We are made in the image of God, meaning when God created humankind, we were created to be God's representation. That makes sense? And this is going to make a lot more sense when we connect to God. Well, what God we got to connect? Because just because we're God's physical, rep uh, 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 his representation, his royal representation, the question has to still exist in your head. But why? Like, why are we God's physical or royal representation? And I'm going to tell you like this, because us being the royal representation of God is an effect of us being made in the image and likeness of God. It's not defining the image and likeness of God. Because I'm made in God's image, I am his representation. Okay, so what does it mean then, again, Tank, to be created in the image and likeness of God? Well, it's very, very simple. Genesis 1, verse 11. Then God said, let the earth produce vegetation, seed bearing plants, and fruit trees of the earth bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds, and it was so. Genesis 1, 21. So God created the large sea creatures and every living creature that moves and swarms in the water according to their kinds. He also created every winged creature according to its kind, and God said it was good. What's the pattern? Things are created after their kind. Okay. Verse 26. And God said, let us make man after its, nope. Let us make man after our 
image and likeness. Now here's the logical conclusion. If everything is created after its kind, if you're going to follow synthesis structure, you're going to follow the flow of Genesis, if everything is created after its kind, God didn't change up the method when he made human beings. He just wanted to be very clear that we ain't got no other kind but him. Who you married after, God? Who your daddy, God? Who you evolved from, nobody? <laughs> What's them apes to you? Nothing. An animal? Food if I'm hungry? <laughs> Sorry, that was bad. I'm gonna get <laughs> We are God's kind. Now, 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 let me be very clear. I don't want everybody walking out of here like, yeah, I'm God. I'm man, I'm God. That's not, that's not kind. You're God's kind. And when you understand what it means to be a kind, it is speaking to kinsmanship. Okay, you don't believe me? Genesis 5.3. Adam was 130 years old when he fathered a son in his likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. Now, if you're familiar with Genesis chapter 5, it's the breakdown of what? The genealogy of Adam. So when he says that he fathered a son after his image and his likeness, and it's a, in a chapter that's talking about genealogy, it's referring to his kin, his family, right? We are God's representation because we are God's children. His kind. Are you seeing that? All right, let me make, let me paint a, a bigger picture there for you. I just we all okay, we good. You don't make it. I just this substance, right? Y'all want this? I can skip it. I can just we can just I can prophesy with you. You had some mighty stuff gonna happen in your life, brother. I don't know why God brought you here today, but He wanted me to tell you. <laughs> substance, right? Okay, Genesis chapter nine. We know that passage. Come out of the flood, Noah and his sons and all of them, they come up out of there. Jesus gives us some instructions. I mean, God gives us some instructions. He says what to him? He says, listen, check this out. You know how I gave you like all the plants in the garden? Well, I'm gonna give you all the animals too to eat for your food. Only thing I need you to do is make sure you don't eat it with his lifeblood. In other words, don't just go be picking up animals, eating them alive. Right? Properly deal with them. <laughs> and then you can eat them. Y'all like this is if you are if you are like in that camp, you are not liking me right now. <laughs> but when it comes to man, he says this in Genesis 9, 5 and 6. And I will require a penalty for your lifeblood. I will require it from any animal and from any human. If someone murders a fellow human, I will require that, that person's life, whoever, I will require that person's life. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans his blood shall be shed, for God made humans in his likeness. Wow. Even animals can't kill humans. Right. But we can kill animals. You said, all right, you said it. But here's the problem. Here's the thing that I want you to pick up on it. When I'm talking about this kinsmanship of being created in God's image and likeness, he tells you why you can't do that. You can't kill no human and think you're not going to be avenged. And here's why you can't, because they're made in my image. Okay? Now, here's the thing. When you read the Bible and you understand this term in the Bible, there's a term in the Bible that your text is going to say avenger. Right? Gaol. Right? But what it represents is this idea of a kinsman redeemer. Y'all know that? Y'all know that term, right? The kinsman redeemer. And in Joshua 23, it says this, that when a person kills someone unintentionally or accidentally, he may flee to the city of refuge where, uh, and free from the avenger of blood. And that whole idea, when you read that and just read all of those avenger passages, it speaks to this kinsman redeemer. It speaks to 
you know, if you kill my dog, I'm gonna shoot your cat. Just the unwritten rules, right? Knew that, right? <laughs> right? It's that whole idea that it comes from. But here's the thing that you need to understand: the whole idea of being a kinsman redeemer is that you now avenge the un uh, the intentional death of your family. Okay? Y'all, 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 y'all with me? Okay. And so God says this: if you kill a human. By a human's hand, I will require his life. Okay, well, why would you do that, God? Well, if the idea of a kinsman redeemer is that if you kill my family, I'll come and kill you, then why would God be saying that a human has to be the one to avenge? Well, that should be a very simple one, right? Because we're all family. You are my brother. You are my sister. But in the same sense, the fact that God is speaking of this type of avenging also speaks to the next level. What's the next level? God is requiring a vengeance on the life of a human because we're made in his image. And what he's saying is, I'm requiring life because you killed my kin. Kinsmanship. Right? That makes sense? All right. So God is lacing the Bible with this idea of humanity belonging to him. We are his specifically. And that's my point. And if you come from, like, the black culture... Maybe in the other culture, but I'm in the black culture, so I'm just going to assume that it's like isolated to us. <laughs> we all heard the same, right? When you go out there, you bear my name. You represent me. Don't go up there and mess my name up, boy. Right? That's my, my that's everybody. I, mean, I got that talk all the time from my dad. I don't know why, but I, I was always messing his name up. But, <laughs> but that was the whole idea. You represent me, so conduct yourself in a way that does not bring shame and dishonor on me. We understand this whole idea of being a representation, and God is saying we are his representation. The reason he wants us to know that we were created in his image and likeness is because he wants us to understand that we belong to him, and we are his representation in the earth. Because we're his kind, we're supposed to represent him. And so our focus of identity is not to represent the world, but to represent God. Yes. And this is why Jesus says this cool little thing in John 15, verse 18 and 19. He says, hey, yo, listen, if the world hates you, understand, it hated me too. Don't trip. Right? Then he says this, and if you were in the world, if you belonged to the world, they wouldn't hate you. They would love you. However, because you are not in the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, the world, what? Hates you. Right? So Jesus is calling those to accept him to remember, listen, the world hates you because you don't represent it. It hates you because you represent me. Right? Which is a very problem for me because this church culture has now somehow adopted this cultural mindset that the reason the world hates Jesus is because the church sucks. No. People hate Jesus because they hate Jesus. Now, people may not, people may love Jesus and not go to church because the church sucks. (laughs) Sometimes. But when people hate Jesus, it's not because Tank was a jerk at one point in my life. There's a lot of people that's jerks to people, and they don't hate them. Right? The issue is it's about people hating, and we live in this culture where we think the way to get the world to accept Jesus is to be more compromised. As if we don't understand what Timothy teaches us about the end days. The world is not going to become more loving of God. The Bible teaches us that as we get closer to the end time, the world is going to become more hostile to God. They're going to persecute the people of God more. And we're living in that time where all I see on social media, if we don't identify the season that we're in, we keep blaming the church. And we keep compromising in the church. And we keep trying to be more false loving in the church. 
It's not going to work. If you think that you can make the world love Jesus more, you're deceived. That is a work of the Holy Spirit. Yes, you got to love on people. Yes, you got to be kind to people. Yes, you need to make sure that you, but, but at the end of the day, if, if your whole identity of loving Jesus is centered on me, that's a burden I don't want to carry. Because I might roll my eyes at you one day. I might not pick my phone up when you need me. You said I wouldn't. <laughs> I definitely wouldn't pick my phone up. Um, no, that wasn't right. But anyway, because we're his representation, he requires some things of us. And we see the same language when he calls Israel his children. He calls Israel his children because he calls Israel his children. He tells them in Isaiah 42, 6, what? I am the Lord. I have called you for a righteous purpose. And I will hold and I will hold you by your hand. I will watch over you. And I will appoint you to be a covenant to the people and a light unto the nations. He said, listen, you are my sons. And now I need you to go and be a representation in the world of who I am. Well, they dropped the ball. We know that. And so Jesus comes along. And then he dies on the cross. And he calls people to come to him. And then he tells those people that came to him, you know, us, the church. And he tells us what? All right, listen. Israel dropped the ball. Now, listen. I need you to pick it up. Go, therefore, into the making disciples of all people groups. And baptizing them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I command. So now he gives the church the same commission to do what? Go be representations of me in the world. But Israel dropped the ball, we dropped the ball, and for the same reason. Why? Well, Israel dropped the ball because instead of being a, a, a culture influencer, they became conformed to the culture. Well, I think that's the same problem we got today. All right. All right, so Randy Moss. Somebody said it. Say Randy Moss. Anybody watch football? Lou was a dope catcher. Didn't drop a lot of balls. Randy Moss. That's my walk. I said kid, catcher, receiver. That's my that's my walk. Every time I think about dropping a ball, I'm just gonna say to myself, Randy Moss. I'm gonna be committed to saying that the ball stops dropping with me. Right? I'm no longer going to just let the ball drop and be a representative, a representative of God. Now, when it comes to my personal walk, my personal life, the ball stops dropping here. I'm not saying I'm going to catch. He ain't catch all. He knows I ain't. He ain't catch all his passes. But I sure ain't dropping the easy ones. Right? Right? I'm sure I'm not going to be afraid to run that route. I ain't going to stick my hand out there to catch that ball. Right? I ain't going to be like, oh, a lot of people over there know that. <laughs> Sorry, it's that one. I'm going after it. And that's what God wants us to do. Question. I'm hurrying. Question. How can we be God's representation if we are more concerned with having an identity defined by culture and not God? That's the problem. If our identity is trying to be uh, 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 taught to us by the culture and not God, and our behavior transforms to the things that we're being taught, then how can we ever be God's representatives? It's the same reason why I'm always telling people, if, if, if you don't read your word, ever, if you don't pray, ever, if you don't go to Bible study, Easter, Christmas, okay, ever. But all you do is be on social media all the time. Who's discipling you? The world is your disciple. And we pick it up all the time. Just listen to things that Christians say. And all it is is just regurgitated nonsense from the world. From people that don't know nothing about God, putting their spin and opinion on it. And then Christians, because we're not being discipled in the church, we're being discipled by culture. We start picking up that language. That weird language. Like, I ain't got to follow no man. Oh, 
Philippians 3, 17 disagrees. 1 Corinthians 11, 1, 11 disagrees. That's Jesus disagrees. The problem is not follow a man. The problem is not following the wrong man. But the Bible is very clear. Follow me as I follow Christ. The Bible is very clear. I pray. I pray for you. Philippians 3, 17. Paul says, I pray for you that you would join in imitating me and following after people who are following the example that we left. Right? The problem is not following people. The problem is you keep following the person with the 10,000 followers instead of the person that's following Christ. We pick the wrong people to follow. Why? Because social media has said the person with the most followers is the influencer. They're the person we should listen to. They're the person who hears from God. And so we're chasing and following after the wrong people. And so now you get jacked up by those people, and now you're like, well, you should be following man in the first place. No, you should have been following that man or that woman. You should have did your research. You should have made sure that they lived the life that it was according to the example that God set for us, Christ set for us. But we just regurgitate that stuff because we've been discipled by the world. Because we read the world's means more than we read the scriptures. Okay. This is supposed to be an encouraging message. I'm sorry. <laughs> How can we, okay, check this out. I'm done. Let's check this out. Because when, when you do not know, oh, there again, that's my first, I'm done. Because when you do not know who you are, you become whoever you need to be. Right? When you do not know who you are, you become whoever you need to be. Good. See, the reason that the culture can't cancel me is because they can't conform me. I mean, the reason that the world can cancel me, but they can't conform me. They can cancel me all day long. But the reason they're canceling me is because they can't conform me. Matter of fact, that's a t-shirt. We need to get that on a t-shirt. The world cancels me because it can't conform me. Yeah, that's a good, that's a, that, put that, that's a hashtag, that t-shirt. We're going to get those. Why you get canceled? Because I won't conform. Why you didn't get canceled? Because I'll be conforming. <laughs> but the reason they can't cancel me, and the reason they cancel me is because they can't conform me. Right? And the reason they can't conform me is because I know who I am. I know who I represent. Everybody want to be kings. Conform. Let me tell you something. Kings don't conform. They dictate. Peasants conform. Want to be kings and queens? That sounds great. But you ain't acting like a king and queen. Kings and queens don't conform. They dictate culture. If you conform in, you're a peasant. I know. You don't like that language. I'm, just, I'm trying to give you like a picture. I'm not calling you a peasant. I'm just giving you a world picture. Right? <laughs> Let me stop here. We gotta go. I ain't even got to this stuff yet. Alright, here we go. Check this out. How do we get here? I'm gonna speed through this. How do we get here? Well, the first identity crisis happened in the garden. Remember what the servant told Eve? The servant came to Eve and he was like, hey yo, Genesis 3 5. In fact, God knows that when you eat, your eyes will be open and you will be what? Like God. Your eyes will be open and you. Okay, this is the problem of not knowing who you are. Because if the servant walked up to me like, hey, bro, <laughs> do what you're going to be like God, I'll be like, like, what? What you talking about, Willis? <laughs> I, I'm going to be like, who? You're going to be like God. I'm going to be like, who? You'll be like God. If I do what? If I eat your, if, if you eat the stuff he told me not to eat, you'll be like God. Oh, <laughs> you thought I ain't know who I am. Genesis 1 told me I was already made in his image and likeness. How, I'm going, how you going to get me to be like I'm already like God? But the enemy was able to tell them, tell them they'll be like something. They didn't understand who they were already. How am I going? How are you going to cause me to be like something that I'm already have or I'm already like intrinsically? I'm created in His image and likeness. Okay, maybe you read your Bible a little bit. You're like, yeah, but it also says knowing good and evil. Okay, so that also means either I don't know who I am 
or who I am ain't good enough. Because it's not good enough to be made in the image and likeness of God, to be a representative of God. Now I want to be God. Who I am ain't good enough already. And there's so many people going through culture who have this identity crisis because who they are ain't good enough. It's not good enough that your family loves you. You want the world to love you. Right? It's not good. It's, just, it's, just, it's not good enough. We always want the bigger platform. But to get the bigger platform comes with a bigger trigger, a bigger angst, a bigger temptation to conform. But it's never good enough what we have. We always want more. We don't, it's, I'm, it's not okay that I'm who I am. I want to be them. It's not okay. I want to be like people on TV. Because they're loved. No, they're not. Talk to them. They got issues too. Trust me, they got a lot more issues than you probably. More money, more problems. Amen. More fame, more problems. And so either they didn't know who they were, or they weren't happy with who they were. And they wanted to be more. And that's an identity crisis that we're dealing with today. All right, listen, I'm done. Sin became, that's the second one. Sin became the first and lasting crisis to our identity crisis. So how do we fix this? Well, here's the beauty. Christ came because all prior representations dropped the ball. And so he came to show us the way. Right? Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Right? And so that's why uh, the way back from our identity crisis is to know who we are in Christ. Right? The way back from this identity crisis is not to continue to look to the world to tell me who I am, but it's to look to Christ. Why do I know that? Because Romans 8.29 says that for those who he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to who? The image of his son. Christ came to give us the example. Listen, Israel sucked it up. Don't look at them. You sucking it up. Don't look at them. Tank ain't perfect. Don't always look at him. But listen, I came to give you an example. I am the image of the invisible God. I am the true representation of the Father. If you only look to me, then you will know who you are and you will be the representation that I called you to be when I created you. Christ came to pick up the ball that everybody else dropped. And so we got to learn to focus on the right person. If we focus on who culture wants us to be, we'll never look like God. You can't be discipled by the culture and think you won't look like it. All right? And so instead of looking to the culture for our identity, let's learn to look to Christ. We overcome the culture by looking to Christ. I love this passage in Ephesians 4.24. It says, and to put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness and righteousness and purity and, and truth. The old self was all concerned with culture, identity, and the world. The new self put on him, and he's conformed with God's likeness, God's righteousness, purity, and truth. And so, we're his child. I'm done. That's the third one. Okay. Okay. All right. You are his child. What does it mean to be the Imago Dei? I'm God's child. I'm God's child, and I'm his representation. I'm created to be his representation. Sure, sin messed this whole little situation up. But Jesus redeemed it. And the identity crisis in the world is because people are looking to something for value, something for worth, something for significance that was never meant to give it to us. Right? The identity crisis in the church is because we also are looking to something that was never meant to give us our worth, our value, and our significance. And so the solution to both the believer who struggles with this and the unbeliever who struggles with this is the same. It's Christ. The solution to the identity crisis it's Christ. And it doesn't mean I'm going to still struggle. Right? Because we've got this war between the flesh and the spirit. 
And so Paul says in Romans chapter 7, who I want to be, I'm not, but that that I don't want to be is that I continue to do. Right? And so Paul's like, listen, I don't want to be like the world, but I keep finding myself doing things like the world. I want to be like the Father, but I keep finding myself doing, uh, my desire is to be like God, but I keep, oh, who can save us from this rap? Oh, thanks be to God, Jesus Christ. By the way, while you keep messing it up, Romans chapter 8 starts off, and therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Right? Because while Paul is saying, I'm trying to figure this thing out, he's also reminding us, so praise God that I'm not condemned, did well, I'm trying to break free of my identity crisis. Praise God that I'm not condemned for the actions that I make while I'm trying to break free from it. Right? right? And so it's not going to be this easy thing. However, if we learn to stop looking to the culture and learn to look to Christ, and then he'll begin to affirm our purpose, our worth, our value. And so look up and stop looking out. And so the first step to freedom from culture and it giving us our identity is remembering that we already have it. And the first step to being free from this identity crisis presented by culture is to remember that I already have an identity. It's Christ. It's God's child. And sure, we messed it up. Sure. We're not acting like his children. That's why we got to be reconciled back to the Father. I mean, if you don't think you're a child of God, why do you think the Bible calls us sons of disobedience? <laughs> right? The Bible calls us, Ephesians chapter 2, calls us sons of disobedience. It still calls us sons. He's just like, you ain't, you ain't you disobedient to that. And listen, man, just because you're a son don't mean you won't be punished. Eternally. But Jesus is like, listen, I want all my family back with me. It's, it's when you go to funerals and and we preach and we give these encouraging words and we talk about the fact that you'll see them again one day. There'll be this reunion, this meeting in the sky. One day, all my, my family will be back with me. Unfortunately, that's not necessarily true, but that's God's desire. His desire is that all humanity, which is his family, he wants his family with him. Sin messed it up. The first identity crisis jacked it up. But he, so he enters into our problem. He says, I'm going to fix this crisis. But all you got to do is accept me. All you got to do is turn to me. All you got to do is walk to me. And, and, and the Bible says in Romans chapter 8, it says, I put my spirit in. And the Bible says that when the spirit of God comes into you, you, you get adopted back into the family. And all rights are given to you. And you'll be heirs and joint heirs with Christ. And the Bible says, and you'll call him Abba, Father. John chapter 1 says, those who believe on Jesus Christ, he gave the right to become children of God. It's not that you weren't his children, but because of your disobedience, you lost the right to be in his family. And if you don't accept Christ, you're staying outside of his family. But the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus tells us that God wants you not outside of his family, but in his family. Nobody has to perish. We know the Bible, 2 Peter 3, tells us that God desires that none should perish, but all will come to eternal life. Ezekiel 36 or 38 says that God does not delight in the death of the wicked. Not 
part of his family. And so he came. He died. And then he made it very easy. He said, yo, all that work stuff, daddy. Now, there's some responsibilities as Christians, but then all that, all that get together 18 times a year and, and move how out of the desert and, and, and circumcise yourself and, and, and catch yourself and all that, all that stuff. He was all of 633, listen, we're not even, listen, God, Christ came to fulfill. I'm not antinomian this. I believe in the law. I believe in responsibility as Christians. However, what he said was that entrance is not works. And there's a responsibility when you become a Christian. But you're no longer entering into my family by how hard you can work to get in. He says, I'm going to make this very easy. I died, you believe. Jesus said, I'm after 